Please open your Bibles to Matthew 21. Stand with me to read God's Word. I've been looking forward to this all week. I hope you have too. We get to read God's Word. Matthew 21, we're going to read verses 12 through 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us in giving us life and in allowing us to be here today. I thank you for each person here that you've gathered. Thank you, Lord, that we could be together and in this place and opening your word. Lord, I pray that you would comfort us where we need comforting, correct us where we need correcting. Lord, give us grace to, to obey what you say in your word and to to cling to your truth and to you. Lord, we pray that, that you would make the, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This sermon is entitled, Behold the Bold King of Cleansing, because it's all about Jesus cleansing the temple. It's all about Jesus coming in and spiritually cleansing now we know all about cleansing in life but not i'm not talking about the spiritual kind i'm talking about just getting clean we we know how to cleanse our bodies by taking showers and baths and and washing our hands and parents you know when you tell your kids to go wash their hands before dinner and they come to you and they show you their hands and you say go back not clean enough when I was a kid, I remember my mom and dad doing something that uh, I thought was odd, but I, I, I have learned that other families in my era and older did this. But when I would speak disrespectfully to my mom, I would have to wash my mouth out with soap. We used ivory soap. I know the taste well. And often I would have to go put the soap on my tongue and, and go show my mom. And she would say, go back. That's not enough because what you said was extremely disrespectful. I have found, and especially by your laughs and by your nods, that others were abused in similar ways. (laughs) But we know how to clean things. We know how to clean our bodies and our hands, and we even know how to clean our colons. I don't know if you've ever had a colon cleanse. I haven't, but I hear it's an eye-opening experience. We clean our houses. Sometimes we do the deep cleaning, right? Or spring cleaning. And we clean our cars and, and we clean other things. But, but Jesus here is cleansing, but it's in a spiritual way. And he's cleansing the temple. And not just the temple, but people's lives. That they would be right with him. 
There's really five things going on that you need to know about here in Matthew chapter 21. And so it's not just like we got to put blinders on and look at Jesus cleansing the temple. I want you to see what else is happening. First, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, humble, um, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. And he is, is basically putting Jerusalem on notice, putting the world on notice that I have arrived, I am here, I'm the king. He's declaring that he's the king. And in the rest of the chapter, he's also continuing to declare that he's the king. So today, he, he cleanses the temple, declaring that he is the king. Then he, we'll see next week, he curses a fig tree. And it was a symbolic gesture of judgment, and it was declaring that the king had come, and he was going to take care of matters. Next, you see his authority being questioned. After that, you see him condemning the religious leaders of Israel. So these are the things that are going on in chapter 21. But there are four things going on in these verses today, in verses 12 through 17, that we just read. First, he's cleansing the temple. He's correcting wrong ideas. He's healing people in need. And he's receiving praise. Those are the things we see going on here. But he's cleansing the temple, and that's really what this passage is known for. But it's important for us to realize that this was not the first time he cleansed the temple. This cleansing of the temple was the second cleansing, the first we see recorded in John chapter 2, at the beginning of his ministry. This cleansing in Matthew 21 is at the end of his ministry here on earth. And now, I want you to go really back in time with me over to John chapter 2 and see what happened there. We'll begin at verse 13. It was also at a Passover time. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. So he kicks everyone out. The tables are being turned over. The money changers are being kicked out. The the Animals are being driven out of the, of the temple area. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, and he told those who sold pigeons. Pigeon was a, the offering of a poor man. And he said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade, a house of merchandise. Stop what you're doing. His disciples remembered that it was written of him, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, at that point in time, at this first cleansing, at the beginning of his ministry, the Jews said to him in verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They hadn't yet seen all the miraculous things that he would do. They had not yet seen all the things that he would reveal about himself. And so they asked him, you've got to give us a sign because we don't know who you are. But here at the second cleansing of the temple... Here in Matthew 21, they knew full well who he was. They had heard, they had seen, they had witnessed. And so you could think of it this way. The first cleansing in John chapter 2 was one of warning. He was putting them on notice. You've got to clean things up. But this second cleansing was one of judgment. They had ignored the warning. They had disregarded it. They had, they had uh, pretended as if he had never said it. And so here uh, he comes in judgment. Now look, we who believe will often say 
The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's a common figure of speech that we like to say to say, look, we're all on the, in the same boat. We're all uh, in the same situation. We're all in trouble because of our sin. And there's no power or position uh, uh, in, in the body of Christ that will ever change that. There's, there, it's the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all know that humanity is in desperate need of rescue and desperate need of cleansing. That dirt and sludge and grime of sin is covering everyone's souls. Not literal dirt and, and sludge and grime, but spiritually. And that's the world in, into which Jesus came at the right time. Born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the curse of the law. He came speaking peace to burdened souls who, who were crushed under a weight of sin, just like he does today. We all know we are polluted by sin, we all know we are in need of cleansing from Jesus. No one is exempt. But isn't it easy for us to look around and look at appearances and look at other people and say, I'm not in as great of need of cleansing as than that person. That person's in worse shape than me. And and we become almost almost Pharisaical in our in our judgments. It's really easy to to uh, to think of Jesus coming humbly into Jerusalem But now, it's a bit harder for us to think of him the way he came into the temple. There there have been pictures drawn and painted of humble Jesus, meek and mild, and many people like to think of him in those terms, but this is no meek and mild Jesus. Jesus, who had come humbly triumphant into into the city of Jerusalem, now is coming into the temple boldly, and he is cleaning house. Jesus is is cleaning house. Here's the gist of what he is, he is doing. He is, he is cleaning, he's cleansing the temple. That was serving notice of the true nature of his mission. Why he really came. He came to restore what sin had destroyed. He came to put, put people's lives back together right with him. So the people could worship him as he intends. He came to, to, to restore what sin had messed up. So here in this passage, what we see him doing is restoring the temple to its rightful use and people to theirs. Let's look through these verses and see some things. In verse 12, he enters the temple. It's the temple of God. When you see this, this term, it's very easy for us to think in terms of one building, one structure, but it's not. It's, it's really the whole, it signifies the whole temple compound um, comprising approximately 35 acres with a lot of things going on. And, and remember, it's very, easy, it's very easy for us to think, well, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and it's just this wide open place of, and, and he's walking straight to the temple. But remember, this was the Passover. There would have been upwards of two million people crowding into Jerusalem and the areas around it. And so he would be going through, it's like you, what if you showed up at Disneyland when it was at the peak and you started authoritatively telling people what to do and, and, and they would arrest you. They would, they would take you away. But here's Jesus coming into Jerusalem through the crowds and I can just see the crowds parting. No one touches him. No one arrests him. He is coming in and he boldly comes in and what does he do? He drives out all who sold and bought in the temple. Now, was it wrong that selling and buying was going on? No. 
It wasn't wrong that it was going on. It was actually commanded to go on, that they needed to buy and sell. They needed to have a sacrifice. People would be coming from all over the place. Can you imagine trying to carry all your pigeons with you? And so it wasn't a bad thing that people were buying and selling and changing money. The bad thing was that they had made what was supposed to be for worshiping God into a, self, um, a self-centered business, a self-centered uh, pursuit. They, they, had made, they were mistreating people. It's like, you know when you go somewhere, let's say you go to the Grand Canyon and, and you go in a gift shop at the Grand Canyon. You can pay a lot of money for something that 20 miles away, you can get for really cheap. Because it's at the Grand Canyon, right? So you come to the temple and you got to pay like a lot more for your pigeons than you could back home. Jesus goes into the temple and he drives them out. He overturns the tables of the money changers. The people had been being spiritually abused. They had been cheated and mistreated and, and, and he was putting them on notice enough. The time is coming when things are going to change drastically. Here's what he says to them in verse 13. It is written. He points them to the word of God in Isaiah chapter 56. My house shall be called a house of prayer. I want you to see a bit of the fuller context in Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 and verse 6 talks about foreigners who come and join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants and everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds my fast my covenant these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer God says their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples for all the nations not just for Israel but for all nations it says the Lord verse 8 who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered but he says my house shall be called a house of prayer but Jesus says you have made it a den of robbers if you were a robber in those days you would have a cave that you would hang out with with your men and you would go and bring all the loot that you had stolen and then you would bring and make or you would bring them all together and you would make plans for the next heist a den of robbers where robbers would hang out thieves would hang out count the money they've taken and then plan the next Jesus says you've made this place that is to be a place where people draw near to me a place where they are, are, are robbed but then we see the blind and the lame coming to Jesus in the temple he's declaring his kingship by cleaning it out and by correcting their error but also by healing people the blind and the lame come to Jesus in the temple they weren't supposed to the blind and the lame weren't allowed into the temple. They were seen as unclean and unfit to be in the place that signified the presence of God among his people. And so Jesus is breaking huge rules here because he heals them. In the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees, he had blasphemed. And by the way, these are real healings. These aren't, you know, hey, I had a cut on my finger and, 
and Jesus made it better, which is a healing. This is not, hey, I had a cold and I had a runny nose and I left and it's not there anymore. This is, I walked in blind, I couldn't see, and now I can. This is, I couldn't walk and someone had to carry me in and I ran out the door. These are, these are big, big healings. What did, what did John the Baptist um, ask Jesus through his disciples? Are you the one or should we look for another? John the Baptist is in prison and he asks, sends his disciples, are you the one or should we look for someone else? And Jesus' reply, go tell them what you've seen and heard. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. The poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus was doing what the Messiah would do, was promised to do. He was declaring his messiahship, his kingship, as he healed these people. But look at verse 15. The chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, so they saw it. He's healing people, big healings. And he saw the children, literally the boys, I'm not sure where the girls were, but the boys were, were I'm sure the girls were loving to praise Jesus too, but in, in this setting, it's a bunch of boys that were coming basically with the enthusiasm of the crowds and repeating back the same words that they said when he was coming into the city, Hosanna to the son of David. Save us, promised one. Save us, coming deliverer. And so the chief priests and the scribes see this and they were indignant. Isn't it interesting? Jesus sees them profaning God's house and he is indignant. They see him doing amazing works of God and they're indignant. And they say to him, don't you hear what they're saying? Like, can't you hear? Well, Jesus' comeback is, can't you read? Uh, have you never read? And he quotes Psalm 8, verse 2 to them. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. What Jesus is doing here is receiving praise as God. It's very significant. He's declaring his, his kingship by receiving praise. This is what is going on. The gist of what is happening here that Jesus cleans the temple and serves notice of the true nature of his mission, restoring what sins destroyed, restoring the temple to its rightful use and people to theirs, points us to a timeless truth that Jesus cleanses and restores people to usefulness so that they realize their true purpose and potential to glorify him. Think about your own life. If you're a Christian and you were hopeless at one point and you were, you were lost and you knew you had no purpose in life and you came to faith in Christ, you, you confessed your sins, you admitted you were a sinner separated from God and deserving of hell and, and you, you came and you threw yourself at God's mercy and you said, I can't do this without you. You died for me in my place and I need you to forgive me and to clean me and to make me a new person. When that happens... You find a purpose in your life that you never dreamed possible. So what was going on here is that Jesus continually declaring himself king, riding in on a donkey, humble, coming boldly into the temple, cleansing, healing those who, who the, the Bible tells us the Messiah would heal. He's receiving praise, and, and in these declarations, we see the true nature of his mission. We see um, what we can latch onto we learn about Christ's cleansing power 
You know, a lot of things are powerful, right? A lot of cleansers are powerful. And, and you, you learn to not use certain cleansers with certain things. You don't use Formula 409 on your computer screen, right? You don't use Windex on your, on your tinted windows and things like that. You don't use um, muriatic acid to wash your hands. There are things you just don't do. But Christ's cleansing power is so unique, so amazing, so significant. And what is getting pointed out about it, really, are, I'm going to point out four things that I want you to see regarding his cleansing power that this passage reveals to us. And the first is this, that his cleansing power is authoritative. It stands, it is strong, it is real, it is, it is significantly stronger than anything else. He comes into the temple, verse 12, and he drives out those who sold and bought and overturned the tables. He drives them all out. And no one arrests him. No one tackles him and pushes him down on the ground and tells him to stop. It's almost like he had this force field around him that no one could penetrate. He's God. God incarnate. And he does this. He walks in and just says, I'm here. I'm in charge. This is my house. He's authoritative. His cleansing power is authoritative. That's the first thing. But the second thing we see in the, in the next verse, in verse 13, is that it is corrective. He corrects, he redirects them to truth. Do you notice that he, he quotes a verse from God's word regarding prayer? So you've got God's word and prayer right together. My house, it is written in the word of God, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He's, he's calling them to true priorities. He's correcting their, their twisted priorities. And his cleansing power is effective. The third thing is it's effective. It, it works. Think about it. In healing in the temple, he heals these, the blind and the lame and he healed them. Verse 14. He's, he's healing in the temple people that weren't supposed to be in the temple. But what he's showing is the temple is to be a place of restoration and worship and blessing. Christ's cleansing power is authoritative, it's corrective, but it's also effective. It works. He healed them and they got healed. The blind were no longer blind. The lame were no longer lame. It's interesting that when he first goes into Jerusalem, Zechariah 9.9 is what is being fulfilled. And And it points us to Zechariah. It really does. It points us to the truth that God said would would take place. How he would speak peace to the nation, Zechariah 9.10. How he is righteous and bringing salvation, Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.16, on that day the Lord their God will save them as a flock of his people. Like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. How great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. It also points us to, to the message that gets... That, that, that proceeds in, in Zechariah. In fact, go with me to Zechariah 14, the very end of, of Zechariah. So Jesus, in his, by his cleansing power, kicks out those who are, who are profaning his place. What does it say in Zechariah chapter 14, beginning at verse, four, uh, beginning at verse 20? 
And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and get this, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. He kicks out those who are buying and selling. Zechariah says there will no longer be a traitor, a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts. It's looking forward to the day when God will make all things new. Looking forward to that day of restoration. His cleansing power is effective. If you've come to faith in Christ at some point in your life and you know that you are saved, you know you're going to heaven, you know Christ is in your life, then you know you were changed by him. And if you came as an adult or even as a teen, you, you know what your former life was like. Praise God that there are children who come to faith in Christ who don't have a huge story of, of putrid sin from their life, though they knew they were sinners and they needed a Savior. But if you come to Christ and, you've had a, and you have a history and you have a past, you know what he cleansed you from. You know how he changed your heart. And all you want to do is praise him for it. His, his cleansing power is effective. It, it works. But there's a fourth thing about his cleansing power that you have to know and you have to realize it is polarizing. It's polarizing. You either love Jesus or you hate him. I hardly ever run into people who are just like, oh, I don't really care. He, his cleansing power was resisted here. Now, it was received by some, but resisted by others. There are some cleansers that are resisted and not able to, to, uh, to work. There are some cleansers that are even weak and can't work the right way. Christ's power is not weak. His arm is not short that he cannot save. He, though, gets resisted by people who have been blinded by the devil, our enemy. And so his, his cleansing power is polarizing. Notice in verse 15, the chief priests and the scribes saw something. What did they see? Wonderful things. And they heard and saw children crying out in the temple, praising God. And their response? They hated it. How do you hate that? You hate that if you hate him. Is a polarizing cleansing power that, that Christ has. And it, it is resisted here and it is also received. You kind of wonder why they were so angry. Josephus said that the high priest Annas was the one who was providing lambs for, the, for all the offerings. That could have cut into some, some serious coinage. Some serious profits were going to get cut into. If the Passover lamb, by the way, who rode into Jerusalem on the very day that you choose the Passover lamb, if he's going to be the, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, there wouldn't be any more, any more buying and selling of lambs. No, no longer necessary. But it's a polarizing, cleansing power, but it's also effective and corrective and authoritative. It stands. It redirects. It, it works. And that should, make, that should make us 
different. That should have an effect on us. We don't just hear about this story way back in the past and go, wow, look, about, look at that. What we need to do is read this today and say, okay, okay, so how should my life be different then as, as, I, as I understand these things about him? See, Christ's cleansing powers should do something in us that is, is radically different than what, we, than what we know when we're left to our own devices. And the first thing it should make us, the first thing it should do in us is make us confident. Not arrogant, but confident in God. Fearless, unintimidated in the, in the face of evil. Think about it. When you get cleaned up, when you get cleansed, you're more presentable, Right? You're out working in the yard and you get really dirty and so, but you know you got to go to a a party later and so you, you clean up. You don't go the way you were. Just this last week I was putting together a, 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 a um, plastic shed in the backyard for, for yard tools and I worked all day on it. I was grimy. I was sweaty. I was dirty. I was not presentable. So what did I do? I went and took a shower and made myself more presentable. Christ's cleansing power should make us confident in who we are in Christ. We, we become more presentable to God uh, when, when we are cleaned by Him. But, but here's the thing. Don't confuse the temple here with church buildings in modern day. Don't, it's so easy for people to say, look, uh, they were desecrating the temple and you can't wear shorts to church. You can't wear flip-flops to church. First hour, people were looking for shorts and flip-flops. I'm like, don't look for shorts and flip-flops. Wear whatever you want as long as it's modest and it's not going to cause anyone to stumble and, and you're covered, you cover up what your mama gave you. This is not about the outward appearance. This is about the inward heart. You can wear a tie if you want. Wear whatever you want as long as it, as long as it is not going to mess someone up and maybe lead them to, to sin. But this is not about, the, the temple thing is not about the church building today. It's about your heart. It's about my heart. If you're, if you're in Christ, then Christ dwells in you. That's your hope of glory. And if you're in Christ, then your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You glorify God in that temple. Christ himself said that his body is the temple. It should make us confident. Christ's cleansing power in our life should make us fearless, unintimidated, confident in Christ, presentable, not confusing the outward appearance, but focused on the heart. Now, obviously, don't, don't use your outward appearance to say, look at me, look at me, or else it might reveal something about your heart. But we ought to be confident because Christ is authoritative. The second thing that it should make us is focused. Remember in verse 13 when Jesus said, look, it is written, you're making my house a den of robbers, but my house should be called a house of prayer. We ought to be focused on true priorities. Christ corrects and redirects us from twisted priorities into true priorities. So we ought to be focused. I often like to say, and I've said it many times, you know, my whole life as a pastor and as a husband and father and brother and son and friend is, is boiled down to two things. People and preaching. The word of God and people. 
two things that last forever. I say people in preaching because they both stand with, start with P, and I like to preach. And I love people, so hey, it, it works, right? The problem is, I realized something at one point that, and God has been calling me back to a very simple thing here, and, it, and it's really, we see it in verse thir- uh, 13 where it says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. It's not just people and preaching, it's people and preaching and prayer. If you, you know, as a church, I like to say, you know, we're really strong in the word. We need to be just as strong in prayer because if you, if you know the word so well, you could become very puffed up, right? Knowledge, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. But if you don't know the word and you, just, and you just go get tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine, that's dangerous. You have to have the word in prayer. It's what the apostles said they would uh, devote themselves to in, in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And that was in the context of people being in the mix. So prayer, it's the three Ps, basically. You can write that down. Prayer, preaching, and people. That's what my life's about. That's what I want my life to be about. And what, what happens when you're more focused on true priorities is you become more healthy. Think about it. When you're eating right and exercising right, you're just healthier for some reason. Well, spiritually speaking, if you're eating right and exercising right, you, you don't get focused on the wrong things as often. And, and your heart is right with God, so the appearance isn't as important, and it seems like that takes care of itself too. But you become more focused. It's, it's, like, it's like the idea of um, Psalm 51.7. Wash me and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. See, when Christ cleanses you you become focused on what is really important in life be a doctor be a lawyer be a plumber be a teacher be be whatever god has called you to be but in the midst of that serve god in that and focus on the primary priorities the word of god prayer and people you won't go wrong you gotta be focused what else does Christ's cleansing power do it makes us confident and focused but also fruitful fruitful Things happen when, when Christ is in your life. The Holy Spirit basically flows out of you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. You don't have to strain. You don't have to make it, you don't have to tack it on. It happens as you yield to God moment by moment. You become fruitful. Things happen. Think about what God did in those blind and lame people's lives. He, he healed them. People against him hated that. Who would hate a life being changed? Who would hate a life being restored? Believers love that. When you're more fruitful, you are, you're more efficient in life. Think about it. Clicking on all cylinders. Not, not as much wasted energy. You know, I like to say, hey, look, um, only God knows. If there's a puzzling situation, OGK, right? Only God knows. But you can also just use the first two letters, OG. There are many things that only God can do. Is there anything in your life right now where you point to and say, you know what, only God could do that? It's little, it's big, but it's a God thing. Only God could do that. Only God can make us fruitful. And we've got to cooperate. Last thing, uh, it, what Christ's cleansing power ought to do in our life, Christ's cleansing power is authoritative, it's corrective, it's effective, and it's polarizing. So that should make us confident and focused and fruitful, but also ready ready for anything verses 15 through 17 here 
Remember, the chief priests and the scribes are watching and they're seeing the wonderful things he did and the children crying praises to God in the temple. They're indignant. Christ is receiving the praise and they ask him, don't you hear this? And he says, can't you read this? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you prepared praise? We've got to be ready for anything. We've got to be yielded to God in such a way that we are ready for whatever God brings our way. Whatever that might be, it's not all going to be pretty. It's not all going to be good. It's not all going to be easy. It will be joyful. It will be sorrowful. But whatever God brings by his grace, we've got to be ready for. There's a polarizing effect to the cleansing power of Christ. So don't be surprised if people hate you because of your faith in Christ. And by the way, we've got to be ready together. Together ready for whatever is next. Do you notice that the children were crying out together? Do you notice that the, the scribes and the Pharisees were coming together to, to repudiate Christ? Do you realize that what, there's a gang of good or a gang of bad here? There's two things that if most people would do, they wouldn't have as many problems. Repent and reconcile. Repent and reconcile. Amen. Repent of your sins and reconcile with other people. Make things right. Get right with God. Get right with other people. We've got to be ready for whatever comes next. It's interesting. Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Pay close attention to your own heart, your own life, and then what you do with other people as it pertains to the word of God and prayer and we've got, to be, we've got to be careful. I think about Paul when he was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders in, in, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. He said to them, pay close attention, guard yourselves and the flock. Basically, watch, just like what he said to Timothy, watch your life and watch your ministry. Watch over what you're doing and, and, and care for the souls of others. That's why Paul would say, I, I'm, I'm willing to spend and be spent for your souls. We do this together. The idea is you receive cleansing from Christ and then you walk together with other believers in community living out the gospel together. Living out the gospel truth side by side. Think about the scribes and the Pharisees for a moment. They were blindly, savagely opposed to Christ. There was this blind, savage hostility on their part towards Christ, and they were together in it. Now think about the church of Christ. Think about Grace Church, Grace Orange. Think about us being in love with Christ, redeemed by Christ, therefore working together to be praising Him with everything we've got and doing whatever He calls us to do together. This is all about cleansing. This is all about the bold king of cleansing, Jesus. There's all sorts of cleansers. You might even say, I know the best cleanser in the whole world, you know, and you might be selling it, who knows. But there, there is one, one thing in the world that can cleanse like no other. It's the blood of Christ. I know that blood stains, in, in, in daily living, blood stains. But in spiritual living, 
the blood cleanses. The blood is the most powerful cleanser. In fact, in your body right now, your blood is cleansing your body. It's a powerful cleanser. Go with me to Hebrews 9. Let's, let's, let's hear about this. What, is, what, is God, what does God bring about because of the blood of Christ? Hebrews 9, verse 11 When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood of Christ cleanses us. Christ coming into the temple and cleansing the temple was putting them on notice that this is why he came to shed his blood for the nations. Receive the cleansing that Christ offers and walk together living the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that you want our cooperation, that you want our glad surrender, that you want us to say, yes, Jesus, whatever, whatever you want, yes, Lord. You don't want us to say, no, Lord, because that just doesn't make any sense. Lord, thank you that if we walk in your light as, as you are in the light, we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, your son, cleanses us from all sin. Thank you, Lord, that it, is, that it is you who lead us to repentance by your kindness. Thank you that it is you who lead us to, to reconciliation with brothers and sisters by your grace. And Lord God, we pray that you would give us grace to do what you say, that your house would be a house of prayer, that we would be people of prayer in our hearts, in our homes, in this, in this body, as whenever we gather, that we would, that we would trust you and, and, and cling to what you say in your word, knowing that there is, there is nothing else that can direct our lives but your word through your spirit. Lord, we want to be vessels for honorable use, set apart as useful to you, ready for every good work that you, that you lead us on. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Christ's name.